We are carrying on then our journey through the minor prophets. I've enjoyed every step of this journey so far. Uh, there's things that have come out that I wasn't expecting to see necessarily. Um, and you get a greater picture of the God who had this incredible love for his people, for Israel, even though they were disobedient. Every time we're looking at these books that speak of the judgment that was to come, we find the hope there, that God was not going to just cast them aside and, and throw them away, that God had an ultimate plan to restore them. And that's exactly what we see in this book of Micah that we're going to be going into this morning. Um, just looking from a time point of view, it seems to be around about 750 um, to 687 BC. So this is about 20 to 30 years um, potentially before the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom uh, and somewhere in the region uh, of 100 or so years until the south, um, the kingdom of Judah was taken by Babylon. Just to put it in perspective in terms of the kings of Israel, uh, you can see there was this constant changing, changing of dynasty, um, Jeroboam, this individual is given the throne by the Lord, and yet his disobedience leads to the fact his son does sit on the throne after him, but only for two years, and then the kingdom changes to Baasha and his son for two years. And so it's just a constant changing of these uh, these lines. Jehu is the longest uh, dynasty, uh, as promised by the Lord, four subsequent generations sat on the throne as God promised him, but only six months for Zechariah his great-great-great-great-grandson. Uh, and then we get down to the last four kings of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Micah, or Micah is the prophet who prophesies during this time. Uh, along with Isaiah and a few of the others, there, he wasn't the only one speaking on the Lord's behalf at this time, but he's the one that's called. And he's specifically a, a prophet to Judah, and yet he addresses the northern kingdom as well. Um, so there's a little bit of overlap in terms of his ministry. So when we look, you'll see that he's referred to in terms of the time of his ministry as being during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, because they were the kings of Judah that specifically he was prophesying to, as you see there. It's during the time of Isaiah. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap with Isaiah. Uh, if you look in some of the commentaries, they'll give you a number of verses that are very, very similar. They seem to borrow ideas from each other. And no doubt they were uh, not just contemporaries, but seemingly friends as well. Of course, it's then that Israel goes into captivity, the northern kingdom goes into captivity, and then we have Manasseh uh, sitting on the throne, the worst king in Judah. Incredibly, at the end of his life, he does repent, and he comes back to the Lord. Um, but his son for two years reigns. And then we get a really good king, Josiah, and that leads then to the final kings of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. Um, Jeremiah, interestingly, does quote and speak of, or in the book of Jeremiah, Micah is mentioned and quoted from. Um, it's, let me just read you the, the, the context here. And this is quite fascinating, because you get a picture of Micah that you maybe otherwise wouldn't see. So this is from Jeremiah 26. And it says, now Jeremiah at this point, by the way, has been arrested and they're thinking of killing him. Um, seems to be Jeremiah's lot. He's forever getting this kind of threat to his life. But this is one of those particular occasions. And we read, then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and the prophets. Okay. Now, <laughs> so look, look at this. Then said the princes and all the people. So the people are kind of ganging up against the priests, the religious leaders, and the prophets, the one who should have been giving some sort of spiritual steer to the nation. And they say, this man is not worthy to die. So they're pleading for Jeremiah's life. 
against the religious leaders who Jeremiah was speaking against. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. So even the people recognized that Jeremiah was speaking in God's name. And then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah, the Morishthite, um, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall be heaps and the mountain of the house house, uh, as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus might we procure great evil against our own souls. So they're saying, look, Micah prophesied, and at his preaching, Hezekiah repented and the nation turned from his wickedness to a degree. Certainly, as a result of that, the Lord did relent or postpone the judgment that was pronounced against them. But notice here that the king says, did he not fear the Lord? Now that was the, the response at this point. What we see then is that this preaching of Micah was successful now notice that the Lord repented him of the evil which he pronounced against them. What it means is that Micah is one of the few that we may refer to as a successful prophet. Now, I've said a number of times, I do think that as Christians we should remove the word success from our vocabulary and replace it with obedience. Because it's never about success. We always gauge that in a worldly uh, term. It's all about obedience. Jeremiah was the least successful prophet, arguably. And yet he was so obedient to the Lord. But Micah was successful, and we do see fruit from his labor, from his ministry. Um, But it's interesting, again, that the message of Hosea and Joel and Amos that we've already gone through, Obadiah and Jeremiah, they're all unheeded. But Micah has that almost unique quality in regard to the prophets to Israel, that they actually did listen to him as a result of what he said. Again, of course, Jonah was listened to, but Jonah was preaching to a Gentile nation, to 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 the Assyrians, to Nineveh. What we do see about Micah is he was persistent. His ministry lasted for up to 60 years. And although it's only a relatively short book, seven chapters, clearly during that time, he was relentless in just speaking to people about God. And, you know, there's an important lesson from us, for us there. I mean, that time range from, again, about 750 to 687 or so, uh, the time of his ministry during the reigns of those kings. In, in Luke's Gospel, we read this account. And Luke chapter 11, verse 5 through 10, it says, Jesus speaking, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, Yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. I just encourage you to be persistent. Be persistent in praying. Be persistent in preaching, in sharing the gospel. And you may have shared the gospel with somebody a dozen times. We'll do it again. Just keep going, because as we see with Micah, the Lord uses that persistence to bring about a lasting fruit. 
I just said already that Micah was contemporaneous with Isaiah, with the similarities between them. Uh, in fact, Isaiah prefixes chapter 2 with two verses from Micah, and there's many other overlaps as well. Of course, Isaiah was the prophet that foretold that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That's back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. But Micah goes one step further in a sense, and he foretells, or foretells the exact location of that, the fact that Bethlehem was going to be the town, and we'll see those prophecies as we go on. The incredible thing is that, that was 750 years in advance. Uh, sometimes we think of prophecy, and we, because we're the other side of a lot of the prophecies in Scripture, you know, we, we don't get the enormity of this. I mean, you try and think of something, an event, 750 years from now. You can't even imagine what the world would be like. You can't imagine what the world would be like in even 30 years from now or 50 years from now. I mean, think of our our children. I mean, go back, say, 30 years ago. No internet, no mobile phones such as we have. It was great, wasn't it? You know, but, but, I mean, I talk to to the girls and sometimes I say things and they just give me this blank stare. And I realize you didn't know that, did you? You know, and, and there is so much that's changed in such a short time. Well, Micah foretells that the Messiah is coming, which is a theme through the Old Testament, 750 years beforehand and tells us it's going to be in Bethlehem. And actually, even more specific, as we'll see as we carry on in the study. This, of course, is what we read in Matthew's accounts in Matthew chapter 2. I read verse 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men, Magi, from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets. And they give Micah this, this, this credence that he is a prophet. He's one that spoke as God gave him utterance. And this is the quote, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And that's a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So we find that Micah is actually quoted in the New Testament at least five times. In fact, Jesus actually quotes from Micah uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, that quotes in Matthew 10, uh, 35 and 36. So um, not extensively quoted, but enough to know that this prophet had certainly made his mark. He was from a small town on the southwest coast of Jerusalem uh, called Moresheth Garth. Um, and it was, it was near Garth, and so the Garth bits added onto it. Uh, you may remember, of course, the Philistine cities. Uh, Ashdod was over there, and so on. But Garth was one of the principal uh, cities. And we all know of a famous individual that came from Garth, uh, Goliath of Garth, whose uh, head is eventually chopped off by David. And David, in some strange situation, takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and buries it at a place called the Place of the Skull. That's why it's called that. And it's subsequently named Golgatha, Goliath of Garth. And that's why it's given that, that's why it's given that name. And it's on that very spot that the Messiah puts his feet right above the head of the enemy in his declaration of eternal victory over the works of the devil. Wonderful stuff. Okay. 
His name means who is like Jehovah or who is like Yahweh. It's that tetragrammaton in the, in the Hebrew, the yod Hey vav Hey, the Hebrew letters. Of course, we don't have all the letters of the, the name of God. The Jews didn't pronounce it because it was deemed too holy for them. And so we just have those letters. So we approximate what it sounded like. And that's why we say either Yahweh or Jehovah. But his name was who is like our God. That's what his name means. And really, his whole ministry is based around his name. That's what he's doing to people, saying, but who is like our God? You know, you worship your idols, you worship these things, but there's no one that compares to our God. And he frequently uses puns or double entendres in his speaking. We'll see a number of those come out as we go through the first two couple of chapters. Um, we, we see the name of the cities uh, in chapter 1 that we'll look at in a while. Uh, Jesus employs the same kind of uh, ideas, actually, in Revelation 3, particularly with Laodicea. The meaning of the names uh, has significance. Now, Micah's message was to all Israel. Okay, so he spoke to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom regarding God's judgment that will be a result of their unrepentant sin. And, of course, he warns the northern kingdom... And then subsequently following their destruction by the Assyrians, as we've been talking about in recent studies, as an object lesson, he uses that to speak to the southern kingdom and say, look, that was what was foretold. This is what's happened. Now repent. The book of Micah consists of three series of prophetical speeches, if you like, each beginning with here. Okay, so that's the the breakdown. This will be be in the the notes on the, the web afterwards. Um, but the first section then, the first part starts with the call, Hear, all the people, hearken on earth, and all that is therein. And then follows the announcement of God's judgment over Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom, and over Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And it's, the judgment is for their transgression and injustices as well as their idolatry, as they rejected the serious warnings of God. And this is why the whole land was desolate, desolated and no longer a place of rest for the people of God. The inhabitants will be chased out of the land, but will be gathered again in the day to come. And it's interesting, that is the tail end of chapter 2. In the midst of all this pronouncement of judgment, we have the hope there once again. The next section, the words again, the word starts with here. Here I pray, O heads of Jacob, you princes of the house of Israel. As the leaders and the prophets of the people are very much blamed for the state of what's going on. And then follows this description of a future glory of Israel in the reign of peace. Uh, in this section, Bethlehem's announced as the birthplace of the Messiah, uh, both in chapter 4, actually in chapter 5, we'll see that, uh, who will be the strong helper of the people during the time of the end when Assyria will attack Israel. And then finally, the last section begins with, Hear ye now what the Lord says. And then follows a remembrance to the love of God for his people as a remembrance to his rightful claims. The mention of God's righteous judgment, the lamentation, and the hopeful prospects of the prophet built the end of the short book. And the last three verses belong to the most, or belong to the most beautiful ones in scripture. Let's quote there from uh, Arnold and Remmers. So again, this overview, looking at these sections, we have the first two chapters, and looking at the judgment against Israel and Judah, and the judgment against the wealthy oppressors, and then finally that promise of restoration. The second message, if you like, chapters 3, 4, and 5, again, the judgment against the religious leaders, speaking of Christ's millennial reign, and then the promise of the coming Messiah. 
And then finally, the last section, chapter 6 and 7, Israel on trial. It's the legal case is presented and uh, Micah's lamentation over Israel. Although these prophets proclaim these things, you, you, you see their heart. They didn't want to be bringing a message of woe. They much rather have brought a message of hope and joy, but they were being faithful to the Lord. And finally, the book concludes with that future blessing for Israel. So that's kind of how it lays out. That's what we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. So let's jump into chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Moorish fight in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, notice, first of all, we have two things here. The word of the Lord, which he saw. There's two things. Now, Albert Barnes in his commentary says, Micah blends in one the facts that he related in words given to uh, given him by God and what he had seen spread before him in prophetic vision. His prophecy was in one, the word of the Lord, which came to him, and a sight which he saw. So he seems to have had a vision, but also God's given him then the words to say to the people. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that is therein. Well, there it is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Just want to just pause here. The expression, O earth, is Eretz in the Hebrew. We see it a number of times. And it's right, it's proper to translate it as earth. And yet very often it's more specific than that. It's more specifically the land of Israel. And so we need to be careful. In fact, particularly when we come to the New Testament, although we change from the Hebrew to the Greek, a number of times there's references to the earth but actually specifically to Israel, to the land that God had given to his people. Just be sensitive to that. Very often those expressions, you, you can tell from the context what it's referring to. Uh, but here clearly the, the, the focus is on the northern and the southern kingdoms. And yet, of course, this is specific to everybody. We can all learn from this. Verse 3, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Now, notice the the twist there. Uh, What is the transgression of Jacob? Now, Jacob, of course, was given the name Israel. So sometimes Jacob's referred to as Jacob when he's seemingly in the flesh, and sometimes he's referred to by that name God gave him of Israel when he's seemingly walking with God. So there's those two kind of contrast. Here, Micah chooses to use, or God speaking through Micah chooses to use the expression Jacob to refer to the northern kingdom. So what is the transgression of Jacob? Speaking of the northern kingdom, is it not Samaria? That was the capital. What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Now, the high places, these were typically physically high places. They're on top of hills, mountains, because it's a very hilly region, of course. And they were places where people would go to get a better vantage point to look up at the stars. They worship the stars, the sun, the moon, and so on, which we think, of course, is nonsense. We would never do such things, would we? And yet we have a whole bunch of our society that indulges in things like horoscopes and other silly things like that. And we find all sorts of other silly gods to worship that are not gods at all. But Israel were caught up in these things. 
And they were worshipping these things. And the high places were where they went to have their uh, pagan rituals and so on and festivals. And yet what Micah says is, they're not just anywhere, but the worst place of all is Jerusalem. This is the place that God had placed his name. Now, are you happy with, with that? You read that and you think that's okay? You shouldn't be, because if you look at verse 4 again, that should make you a little uncomfortable. God says here, and the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire. Well, you've all seen what happens when wax gets hot. And as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Now, this is a cataclysmic kind of event that's being described. Now, of course, we tend to read this and we think of, you know, well, it's just picture language, isn't it? It's just kind of like using these expressions to try and convey something. Is it? Well, one of the things that I, I really, truly respected Chuck Nisler for was the fact that he said that he had to review and uh, revise his understanding of certain passages of Scripture as he'd grown, as he'd read more and learnt more. Always to take things more literally. God means what he says and says what he means. To us, this seems like a, a strange kind of just a, an expression, a little kind of, kind of poetical license built in there. But I would just challenge you this morning that maybe these things are not that at all. Let me just, just, for, just indulge me just for a moment. You see, the Bible speaks of a lot of catastrophes through history. Of course, the flood, you know, we've got the mountains that form the mid-Atlantic ridge, the, the, that great rift valley that runs down through uh, Israel, through Africa. I, I'm sure you're familiar with that mid-Atlantic ridge. If you look on any map, you can see it, this kind of scar, this tear in the crust of the earth. And kind of adjacent to this, on both sides, you've got these mountain ranges that seemingly were forced up. And a lot of people think that at the time of the flood, as the waters from the earth burst forth, what they did was they literally forced the land aside. You've got things like the White Cliffs of Dover now coming from this area. I was born nine miles away from Dover. That, if you ever thought about it, is evidence of catastrophe. How do you get all the crustaceans all buried at the same place? Well, because everything was shaken up and deposited. And that's why you have, the, the, the on the south of England really, the, the Great White Cliffs you know, all the way along down through Eastbourne and so on. No, this is, this is evidence of catastrophe. We're not used to this. We don't tend to think about this. And then it's things like asteroids. So we even think about that. Where did the asteroids come from? You know, in this area between Mars and, uh, and Jupiter and so on, you've got this big band of asteroids. Where did they come from? And almost all ancient literature speaks of these kind of things. The ancient city of Troy was apparently rebuilt seven times, but never as a result of war. And it's baffled historians as to why. When Rome was built, it was built a long way inland, when typically you would build a, a town near the sea. So it was great. Now, yes, it was built on the River Tiber, but there's evidence to suggest the reason they built it inland was to avoid some of the tsunamis and some of the other effects from some of the cataclysmic events that had taken place. Now, of course, the Bible speaks about this as well. Psalm 18, for example, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan was driven back. Well, we're fine with the sea saw it and fled because we were aware that the, the sea parted as Moses and the children of Israel went across. And Jordan, of course, we know that from Joshua. He, he was the one that led the people across the Jordan. The waters were uh, cast back up 30 miles upstream to Adam. But then verse 4 says, The mountains skipped like rams and the hills like little nags. Well, if the first two, in verse 3, the, 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 um, 
the Red Sea and the Jordan were driven back, why suddenly we assume that verse 4 is speaking kind of metaphorically? What aileth thee, O thou sea that thou fledest, thou Jordan that thou was driven back? So again, just thinking about these things, the same kind of language. Psalm 18, ye mountains that skip like rams, and ye little hills like lambs, tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, which turned the rock into standing water, the flint into fountain of waters. Now, we are told in our education system, and the children will be told, that the earth has stayed the same for millions of years. Well, you don't need a degree to realize that that's not true. Things cannot have been the same, because we know for a fact that the earth is under constant reign of interplanetary debris. Things are falling on the earth all the time. Now, most of it is not a problem. Apparently, we accumulate about 100 tons of extraterrestrial material per day. As I say, most of it doesn't really cause us any problem because it has no uh, impact or very little impact whatsoever. And we, yeah, I mean, you've all probably seen it from time to time, a shooting star. I remember years ago, I was down on holiday uh, with Joy, not long after we were married. We were down in uh, Wareham Forest, and there was no kind of natural, uh, or there was no light pollution in that area. It was very dark on the campsite. We were looking up, and you could see this incredible kind of meteor shower going on. So we're all familiar with that. But, you know, every now and again, we get a really big one. And so some of you have seen that picture. This is Winslow in Arizona. This crater is about one mile across. Something huge landed there. And this is one of the things that, well, that killed the dinosaurs. Well, I'm sure if it hit them, it wouldn't have helped. Um, I think the flood is probably a better explanation than the changing climate after the flood as to why the dinosaurs died out. Nevertheless, we know these things happened. And then back in 1908, back in Siberia, or across in Siberia, Tunguska, uh, this boloid here, it, it destroyed about 2,000 square kilometers of forest. It was so remote, it wasn't even investigated or explored for about 17 years after the event. But apparently it's about a 15 megaton equivalent, huge, huge impact, the explosion, and so on, just devastated a huge area of forest. So we know these things take place, and yet we choose generally, or our education system chooses to ignore it and try and say everything continues as it was. That's this whole gradual change kind of idea. And yet, we've got a lot of evidence to the contrary to that. We've got another crater that was discovered back in 1991 off the Yucktown Peninsula, Central America. And that's six miles in diameter. The huge force of the, the power there is actually under the, the seabed. So that's why it wasn't discovered initially. Uh, but yeah, we, we've got a lot of these things. Okay, now again, did that kill the dinosaurs? All these kind of questions are thrown out there. Now again, could it all just occur over millions of years with the old freak event, or is there compelling evidence that it didn't? Well, I think there is, which is why I'm sharing this with you, because again, I want you just to trust what the Bible says. Don't dismiss these things out of hand. Now, if you look at any surface in the solar system, you're going to see evidence of catastrophic events. I mean, just look at the moon, for example. The moon is full of these potholes. Uh, you may have read this week that one of Elon Musk's rockets, apparently, that was sent up some years ago, uh, is about to crash into the moon and explode. They said it's not going to really cause much of a problem, but it will leave a bit of a dent. Well, it's not really going to mess things up too much because the moon's already full of dents. Things have hit the moon continually over time. Mercury is exactly the same. It's been hit by many things. We don't see this going on now, but it must be that it's happened at some point in the past. Uh, again, you can see uh, there's lots of evidence of these things. Mars is very interesting, though. When we look at Mars, once again, we find evidence of craters on Mars. But the fascinating thing is that 93% of the craters are on one side. What does that tell you? 
Well, it tells you that whatever happened, happened quickly. Because if Mars was just rotating and this was a slow process, the craters would be evenly distributed over the surface of the planet. But they're not. 93% are on one side only. In fact, the largest crater is nine miles wide. On the opposite side, you've got the largest volcano in the solar system that we know of. It's called Olympus Mons. It's three times the height of Mount Everest, and you can see it with uh, telescopes and so on. You Google it, you'll find pictures of this thing. So on one side, you've got the biggest crater. On the other side, you've got the biggest volcano. Well, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to think that something might have gone straight through and caused this problem. There's also what's known as the Tarsis Bulge. It's 3,100 miles long. Again, it's on what's known as the Serene Hemisphere. It actually makes up 46%. So this kind of tear or this bulge that's on the opposite side to where the crater is seems to be, again, the result of whatever hit Mars from one side. You just about see that tear in the middle there uh, going along the side of Mars. Now, the hypothesis, and this is noted in ancient secular history as well, was there was once another planet that was had its orbit between Jupiter and Mars. And that in the last 10,000 years or so, it entered into the gravitational, what's referred to as the Roche limit of Mars. It got so close to Mars as it was going through the orbit that it literally got pulled towards Mars so much that it was forced to shatter and blow apart. And it literally just tore this apart. The ancient name for this planet was spoken of by the Greeks as Astra. Well, now it makes sense as why we have an asteroid field. If this is true, that this whole planet was blown apart and so on, sucked into Mars and big lumps of it were there. Fascinating as you start to uncover this. Just a couple of things. There were some um, well-educated people. Uh, Donald Patton, Robert Hatch, and Lawrence Steinhauer. Patton was an astronomer and author. Hatch uh, was a senior engineer for the space division of Boeing. And Steinhauer taught orbital mechanics at Harvard University. And they built a computer model to look at all these things. And they postulated that Mars and Earth were once on synchronous orbit. So at the moment, of course, we have a 365 and a quarter day year. And yet the Bible speaks so often about a 360 day year. It's what we find in Revelation. It's what we find at the time of the flood and numerous other passages, Daniel 9's prophecy and so on. And they noticed that these ancient catastrophes occurred at a frequency that could be measured. It was every 54 or 100 years. Seemingly as Mars and Earth were coming quite close to each other, much closer than they do today. So the summary is that something big crashed into Mars. I suggest it could well have been Astra, Astra, which is why we have the asteroid field. It explains where that came from. It left those spinning debris going around Mars. And they obviously got trapped in its gravitational field, as we, we saw as we looked at that. It also left us with the two moons of Mars, which are just these odd-shaped rocks uh, that are still going around Mars. As I said, Earth has gone from a what I believe the Bible speaks of a 360-day orbit. Something changed, and it's now on a 365 and a quarter-day orbit. Mars today is on a 687-day orbit, but it was postulated that it was once on a 720. That means that twice a year, Earth and Mars would come relatively close to each other. Now, interestingly, all the ancient calendars are all based upon 360-day years. And it's where we get the 360 degrees in a circle. 
or 60 minutes an hour and 60 seconds in a minute, so on. Uh, there was 360 icons in the Gnostic Genii, and there was 360 gods in the theology of the Greek Orpheus, 360 idols in the palace of Dari in Japan, one for every day of the year, the same with the Hobo in Arabia. The, the, they were all destroyed except one, which was the moon god, known as Alila or Allah. And that was the only god that was, was kind of saved out of that situation. Uh, Muhammad responsible for that, of course. So, again, we find a number of these 360-day years uh, alluded to in Scripture. But what's interesting is all the ancient calendars changed in 701 BC. Something happened. Rome changed their calendar. They added five days. Hezekiah did a bizarre thing. He added a month seven times every 19 years for whatever reason. Uh, But why even change at all? Why change all the calendars at that point? Well, again, the effect would have been the earth would have come much closer to the earth on two occasions during the year. Uh, typically one in March, uh, it's kind of time, and one around about October time. And Mars, by the way, this is where we get this idea in uh, the March one of the lengthened month, or Lent. That's where Lent actually comes from, because Mars was known as the lengthened month. Uh, and there's all sorts of interesting things, which I'm not going to go into in too much detail as a result of this. But... The effects of these Mars pass-bys, uh, according to these people that have really spent some time looking into it, and I've got some of the books and I've read them, they are fascinating, that they would have caused 200-foot tides or tsunamis, but also land tides, polar shifts, which is evidence of that as well. It would have also caused meteor and boloid showers, uh, lengthening the day by changing the procession. And these are quite interesting things. Now, there's a legend of a long night in China... And this is where, again, we get this idea of March with the length of the month. And the, the idea is that Mars could have actually come within 35,000 miles of the Earth. Now do you see why it's interesting that the people in Israel and the other cultures worship the sun, the moon, and the stars? To us, it's, it's illogical. We, can't even, we look out and we look at Mars, and it's like, well, is, is it that one? It might be that one. I don't know. They were fearful. Mars was known by the Romans as the god of war. They were frightened of Mars. Well, if there's truth behind this, and I suggest that there's a lot of good science and truth that supports a lot of historical evidence to suggest this is certainly in the right direction, I think this is fascinating. It gives a better insight into why these people got involved in this idolatry because they didn't understand the, the nature of it all and what was going on. But clearly there were physical effects on the earth, such as the Bible describes. Again, the last pass-by seemed to have occurred in 701 BC. And from that point, the orbits of Mars and Earth changed slightly so that no longer do we have this kind of close relationship. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Patton and Hatch in their book, Catastrophism in the Old Testament, went through a number of these events. And they, or they noticed, they weren't Christians, by the way, but they noticed that they coincided with the times, approximate times of the biblical events that are spoken of, when incredible things took place. It doesn't explain away the miracle. It just means that the Lord used other mechanisms to do these at the specific times they occurred. And we know how God is precise with his dates and things occurring. Last one, notice, 701, that's right in the time frame of Micah. Okay, that's when the 185,000 Assyrians died. That's in the time of Hezekiah. That's when they repented, they sought the Lord, and the Lord delivered Judah from Shennacherib's hand. Interesting that all these things all fit this kind of pattern. So I share it with you, I'll let you do with what you want, but I just want to bring your attention to the fact that so much of what you read in Scripture, we really can take seriously. Therefore, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field, 
and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. Now, this is quite interesting because Sargon II completed the siege in about 722 BC. Samaria was situated on a butte or literally a kind of high hill with steep sides on either side of it. And it was completely subdued. The stones of many of the structures were rolled down the walls of the butte into the valley, exactly as Micah prophesied here. And the very foundations were uncovered. See again, these aren't just some poetical things. These were fulfilled with incredible detail. The more you understand the history of it, the more you start to see that God was absolutely spot on in what he gave Micah to prophesy before the event. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof I will lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. Just on that point, different translators translate it. Some where it says drachens, they'll say jackals, and some where it says owls, they'll say ostrich. Looking at the Hebrew words behind it, um, dragons, the word there, always seems to imply some sort of monster. Once again, we tend to think, well, dragons, this is King James English, and you know, and yet dragons were just another name for what we would refer to as dinosaurs. You know, and maybe that's the case. Uh, maybe that they were other creatures, but certainly the biblical Im- implication is that these were fearsome creatures that made some sort of very, very frightening noise. And I will make the wailing, and it's a comparison. I will make the wailing like the dragons. It wasn't saying that the dragons were there, but it's saying the wailing was such of the people of Israel when this judgment came that they were crying out like these beasts were. And mourning like the owls. And that, again, may well be ostriches. Apparently, ostriches make a, a horrible sound when they screech out. Possibly. I'll leave you to dig, digging if you want to go further on that one. But then, for her wound is incurable. Interesting, isn't it? That, you know, this is a, a God who can do anything. And yet, he says that Israel has gone so far that it has become incurable. They've died like Pharaoh did, given their heart over, so much so that there is no return. For it is come unto Judah, and he has come into the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And then it says, and this is where we see an interesting progression, okay? Declare ye it not at Gath. Now, you're familiar with Gath. Of course, uh, Micah comes from a town not far away from Gath. Weep ye not at all in the house of Arthur. And that's... You're familiar a little bit with the Hebrew because you know that Beth means house or Bet means house because Bethlehem is the house, okay, Bethlehem Judah, the house of bread and praise. Okay, so the house of Arthur is also sometimes written as Beth Arthur, okay, uh, roll itself in the dust. Uh, and then pass ye away, thou inhabitants of Sephir. having the shame, thy shame naked, the inhabitants of Zanan, uh, come not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel, the house of Ezel, he shall receive of you his standing. For for the inhabitant of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So we've got a number of names listed here. But what we don't get when we read it in our translations is the wordplay. I'm going to try and take you through that in just a second. So let's just carry on for a second. 
O thou inhabitant of Larshish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shall thou give presents to Morasheth Garth. The houses of Achzib shall be like, shall be lied to the kings, be a lie to the kings of Israel. So these other two places now. Uh, yet I will bring an heir unto the O inhabitant of Marishah. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Okay, so these last two uh, places are really interesting. Yet I will bring an heir unto thee. So it's yet. So it's now saying, because of all, all this is going to happen, yet I will bring an heir unto the inhabitant of Marisha. He shall come. Who's the he? We'll come to that in a second. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Well, that gives you an indication of who we may be speaking about. Let's have a look at these, these names then. So Garth literally means tell or tell town is, is the, the, the best approximation of what it means. Beth Arthur means town of dust. Sophia means fair or fair town. So it's something that's beautiful, something that's, that's lovely. Zayn means stir, that's to stir something up. Beth Ezel has the idea of standing. Maroth has the idea of bitterness associated with it. Jerusalem, of course, the name is teaching of peace. Shalem or Shalom, of course, means peace. Larshish is the idea of horses, horse town, typically. Morasheth, Garth, literally means the possession of Garth. And then Akzib, which means deceit. And then Marasheh means inheritance. And then finally, Adullam, justice of the people. Okay, so let's try and make sense of this and actually kind of put it into some kind of context. If you were a Hebrew reading in the Hebrew, this is how you would read what we've just read. Don't tell it in Telltown. You see, see straight away there's wordplay. Don't say about this in Telltown. Don't tell it in Telltown because the idea is lest the Philistines rejoice at your demise. Then don't weep. It's too late for weeping. Instead, roll the dust or roll in the dust in mourning, you people of Dust Town. That's the name. Beth Arthur. So again, there's this link in the words. My fair one who lives at Fair Town, that's the name of Sophia, has been stripped naked and carried away. Again, this should not have happened to a fair one. It's speaking of someone who's beautiful, that something so, so wrong has happened to her. The inhabitants of Stir could not be stirred. You see, Mike is using this to really emphasize, to get his point across, using the names of all these towns that are round about you know, as he's naming each one and using their names to bring in this, this reality that judgment is coming. When the town of Standing, or Bethesel, could not stand, Maroth, which means bitterness, hope for good, but only bitterness came. Even right up to the town of peace, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was supposed to be this place of peace, but it says there was no peace. You people of Horsetown or Larshish, ride away. You're famous for your horses, well now get on them and ride away quickly because judgment is coming upon you because you led Judah into sin. It's interesting that Israel is first to be judged because they went first into iniquity. But then of the towns of Judah, Larshish is the first to get judgment come upon them. Of course, we, we find it with the Assyrians. They lay waste to Larshish. You go to the British Museum, you can see the they've got all sorts of artifacts they've uncovered and discovered from Larshish from this attack by the Assyrians. 
before, way before uh, finally the Babylonians came sometime later. People of Moresheth Garth will be given away as a possession of your enemies. See, all these names specifically applying to, to them and their circumstance. Akzib, the town of deceit, has given false hope to the kings of Israel. And then Marashah, it means inheritance, shall yet have the heir of God's appointment, the enemy. God was appointing not what they wanted as their heir, but another heir, the enemy. It shall not inherit the land as promised to the faithful, but shall itself be inherited, its people dispossessed. So this place that's name means inheritance, effectively going to be disinherited. And then Abdulam, the town of justice. God will make justice unto you. You who were once the glory of Israel will be humbled. Okay, so this gives you some idea. And then verse 16 goes on. Make thee bold and pole thee. For thy delicate children, enlarge thy boldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Now, boldness was a sign typically of humiliation, either choosing to be humble, as in taking a vow, or by being forced into humility, not through your own choice. And there's some scriptural references there uh, for each of those type of ways that boldness was uh, applied. But here God says that they are going to be humbled. Okay, let's just go through There's only a few verses in this chapter. But woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. Straight away you see the overtone of Isaiah here. He uses these kind of expressions. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. In other words, they were not being led into iniquity. They were inventing it as they were laying on their beds. And they covet fields, and they take them by violence, and houses, and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which you shall not remove your necks, neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. Now, it's interesting here that in Leviticus we're told that the land shall not be sold forever. This was an instruction that God had given that they weren't to sell the land. It wasn't to be given to someone else. It was to remain within the family, within the tribe. And yet here what was happening is if somebody wanted a particular piece of land, and of course we have that great example with Naboth's vineyard, if you're familiar with Jezebel and so on, that's exactly the kind of thing that was going on. People, if they wanted something, they would just take it by force. And the weak and the, the poor, the people that were being oppressed, God sees this injustice. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation. Uh, again, uh, Chuck Mizzler made this comment. He says the three Hebrew words that are here are an expressive, emphatic play on words. Uh, a monotonous wail. This is it. Lament with a lament of lamentation. Okay, that's how we would kind of probably put it in the English. Just trying to build this and say, we be utterly spoiled. He has changed a portion of my people. How has he removed it from me? Turning away, he has divided our fields. See, what they're saying is that we're losing our inheritance. We're losing our land. It's been taken away. That which has been given to us. And God is saying, yes, because you forfeited it. You've gone back on the covenant and the agreement. I'd let you have this land. It's my land, and I've let you be tenants, but it was conditional. And so I'm taking you out of this land for now. Therefore, thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord. 
Okay, so this idea of casting a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Adam Clark says, uh, you will no more have your inheritance divided to you by lot, as it was to your father's. You should neither have fields nor possessions of any kind. God is giving them this, this startling news that they are going to be uprooted from this land. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy, they shall not prophesy to them, they shall not take shame. O oh, thou that art named, the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? You know, is the Lord's hand short? Is he unable to, to deal with this situation? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walk uprightly? Really what they're saying is don't prophesy judgment. Only, only prophesy peace. We don't want to hear prophecies of judgment. We'd be like the world today. They don't like anything about judgment. But tell them something nice. They're happy with that. You know, and then verse 7 really is saying, is it God's fault? And the righteous don't need to fear what's coming. Even of late, my people has risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe of the garment from them that pass by securely as men adverse from war. See, Israel had not only become an enemy to God, but also to their own brethren. During Micah's ministry, Pekah, one of the final kings of Israel, killed 120,000 of his own valiant men in one day. A staggering. Yeah, no doubt insecurity on his part, but he puts to death a number of his own soldiers. And then he enslaves 200,000 women and children, robbing them of their wealth. One of the things that you get to see from Micah, and all of this speak of judgment, is that God is not mocked. There will come a time that God will act. And it's the same for this land. It's the same for this world. God is not sitting passively by, ignorant of what's going on. He sees, and he will, in his timing, at the right time, step in. It says, the woman of my people have you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. That's one of the things that the New Testament speaks about. In fact, kidnapping was punishable by death. And yet, really, that is implied here, that they've taken away from these children the relationship with God that these children should have grown to know. Arise you and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. This is not going to be your, your home, your inheritance. It shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit of falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be a prophet of this people. In other words, you want to hear from the prophets to say what you want them to say. But you don't want to hear from those that are speaking the truth. Again, the idea is that a rising depart for this land is not your rest. Again, it could be the UK in 2022. Could net these things. People like prophets that say what they want to hear. In fact, we read in 2 Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So in the midst of the judgment of the wealthy oppressors, God then declares this. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. So he's speaking of being cast out of the land, losing this inheritance. But then God says, but I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozra. Recognize that name? We know that today is Petra or Jordan, the same area. As the flock in the midst of their fold, 
and shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. What's fascinating about these verses that from 895 BC, when the kingdom divided or there or thereabouts within a few years of that, when it divided after the time of Solomon to the two kingdoms, northern and southern kingdoms of Judah and Israel, from that time up until 1948, it wasn't possible for this verse to be fulfilled because it it requires the two kingdoms to be brought back together, which is fascinating. Of course, in 1948, Israel became a nation again. Israel and Judah brought back together. And it says, all Israel are going to be gathered where? Bozra. And I will put them together as sheep of Bozra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. It's as if the Lord is putting them into a place of safety. Well, this is exactly, of course, what we read in Revelation 12. And of course, while they're there, we know from Zechariah that they're going to mourn for their Messiah. Zechariah says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Romans 11, 25 through 27, we read this. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until, it's one of those untils, the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And God making this promise here through Micah. Notice, surely assemble. God is going to bring them together. Oh, Jacob, all of thee, he says, all the whole nation. And I will gather the remnant of Israel. And in numerous passages, Isaiah speaks of them being gathered. Those who are outcasts, those who are scattered, about to perish, are going to be gathered back to the land. Jesus quotes that in Matthew 24. And I will put them together as the sheep of Bosra, as the flock in the midst of their fold, and they shall make a great noise. It's the noise is the noise of fear. It's a noise of, of victory by reason of the multitude of men. Again, the purpose clearly is that God is bringing them back. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out of it, or gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Maybe a difficult verse in terms of the way it's translated, a bit clunky possibly in translation. But the idea, and all commentators seem to say exactly the same thing on this, the breaker was applied by a number of historians to Syria having reference to the extraordinary cruel and inhuman treatment of the peoples they conquered, uh, enemies being impaled, flayed, beheaded in great numbers, and so on. But it's contrasted here with the breaker that Micah's prophesying is the great breaker of mankind's darkness and the sin that is coming. So the idea is that using the idea of Assyria coming, but saying that there is another breaker coming that's going to come up before them. Albert Barnes says, from this passage, the breaker through was one of the titles of the Messiah known to the Jews. Again, almost all commentators I looked at said exactly the same thing. The breaker has come up, I have gone up before them, they have broken up or broken through and have passed the gate and have gone forth. The image is not of conquest, but of deliverance. Plainly then, 
They were confined before, as in a prison, and the gate of the prison was burst open to set them free. What a lovely picture of what the Lord is going to do with Israel. They've been in a prison seemingly for so long, constrained by the nations, and ultimately they'll be forced to leave the land and to hide in Petra and Bozrah. But then the Lord will come, visit them, bring them back to their land. The breaker is going to break through, bring them back. They're going to pass through the gates into their land. And that's a picture, by the way, I've nicked from Leon's website, uh, The Golden Gate. There's a link on our website to his, uh, and he's got lots of great little kind of studies and commentaries and things. It's worth checking that out. Um, but that's the, the Golden Gate or the Gate of Mercy, beautiful gate, Eastern Gate, same thing, that many believe that Jesus will come through when he comes back to Jerusalem. And that seems to be what this is saying is going to happen. So in the midst of all the judgment, there's still hope. God is still faithful. God will still fulfill the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, to David, that promise that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. And Micah's going to build from there. So let's bow our hearts and we'll pick it up chapter 3 next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of this talk of judgment for their iniquity, Lord, you still let them know that there is hope. The Lord, you are a faithful God. And though, Lord, we are unfaithful, you are never unfaithful. You cannot deny yourself. So, Lord, we thank you for the lessons you teach us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love for us. Father, help us to learn from the mistakes that were made by Israel. The way, Lord, that they got involved in idolatry, which may seem to us as bizarre and strange, and yet to them seems so obvious and so natural. And Lord, help us to be so cautious of the natural, the natural inclinations, the natural tendencies that we have to lead us away from the things of you. Oh, Father, give us a heart that is set alone on you, eyes that are single, Lord, that have that sight that only looks to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.